listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to Belabored episode 166. We are talking to the New York Taxi Workers Alliance today about their new plan for boosting wages of rideshare drivers across the city and boosting working conditions for taxi drivers, too. But first, the news. So it's been a few years since the nail salon industry moved to center stage in the labor world after reports emerged of massive exploitation of its mostly female immigrant labor force in New York. After many efforts to crack down on labor violations in the industry across New York State, it seems workers are still fighting tooth and nail to make a decent living. The first ever in-depth national study of the nail salon industry, conducted by University of California Los Angeles' Labor Center, shows how the working conditions haven't really changed much across the country since that New York Times expose a few years ago. Although the sector has long been a mainstay enterprise for Asian American communities, particularly the Vietnamese refugee and Chinese diasporas, roughly 8 in 10 of these workers are designated as low wage, meaning they earn less than $13.46 an hour. A full-time or part-time worker might just take home 9 or $10 an hour, as little as $30 to $40 a day. Despite their poverty, though, many serve as the main breadwinners for their families. As with many low-wage service workers, Many of these workers are paid irregularly, especially if they are undocumented, and they're denied overtime pay and other entitlements because they are misclassified as so-called independent contractors and not really considered official employees. That excludes them from basic federal labor protections and many state labor protections as well. The underregulated workforce is often rife with labor violations due to not only the tight profit margins, with a manicure or pedicure costing as little as 20 or 30 bucks sometimes, but also the relative opacity. It's dominated by social networks within Asian immigrant communities, and often these are undergirded by intense hierarchies of loyalty and tradition, and they have practices like sharing pay, 40-60, with owners, and it's an arrangement that often leaves many workers chronically underpaid and impoverished. But the sector has also seen progressive change in recent years. One example is the California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative. It's a Bay Area workplace safety and health initiative that engages both workers and owners, and it runs an incentive-based healthy salon recognition program that rewards high-road employers for using greener materials, providing staff training, and proper ventilation for workers. And it's an environmental coalition, so it's seen as good for consumers as well. Labor groups in New York, meanwhile, have launched a similar scheme, the New York Healthy Nail Salons Coalition. But that effort, in part because it focuses a lot more on labor rights, has faced resistance from employers in the Asian immigrant community. The industry is always going to be tied to the ultra-cheap luxury of a storefront manicure, but those grassroots advocacy initiatives show that worker empowerment is possible for these workers, and workers themselves can lead an industry makeover by making their struggles and their communities visible and vocal. At the University of North Carolina, a battle that has been ongoing for a while has leveled up to a new tactic, collective action by graduate assistants and instructors to withhold student grades. 
Specifically, the fight is over Silent Sam, a Confederate statue that was removed from campus after repeated student protests and direct actions, including, well, pulling it straight down. The university's solution to the protests from students, which, you know, who resent perhaps having a monument to treason and defense of slavery on their campus, was to build a $5 million center for the statue and increase security on it. At a time when, as our guest Sam Feinsery, one of those instructors, explains, non-tenured instructors at the university are barely scraping by. The workers' action, titled hashtag StrikeDownSam on social media, has garnered national attention and support from more than 200 of the university's faculty, and also, importantly, in this sports-heavy state and school, more than 200 current and former UNC athletes. Feinsurry, who just finished his PhD in history at the University of North Carolina and who is currently teaching there, joined me to explain the fight. First of all, tell people who don't know what is Silent Sam and when did people start pushing to have it removed. So Silent Sam is uh, a Confederate statue that stood. Um, now it's currently been knocked over, but uh, it stood at the front of UNC's campus. It was erected in 1913, and this was an era when white supremacy was kind of back on the rise. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it was the decade, uh, right around World War One, was the decade when uh, the most number of lynchings occurred in this country. And so what you see at the same time is... Yeah kind of a reimagination in the South of what the Civil War was and what was it, it was about, and it was about honoring the Southern society, was the claims. And so the guy who donated or, or sorry, commemorated the statue was a man named um, Julian Carr. And he was kind of a big shot in the area. He was a big industrialist. Uh, they call him a big philanthropist. Um, he was also a white supremacist and probably a KKK member. Oh, goody. When he commemorated the statue in 1913, you know, he talked about reestablishing white supremacy. He talked about how in front of a bunch of Union soldiers, he beat a Negro wench, and that's a quote, um, just 50 feet from this spot. And, and so this is what this statue is about. It was about commemorating the South before the Civil War and that society. And that's kind of outrageous to have on our campus. And it was built 50 years after the Civil War. Um, after this era where blacks actually saw some expanded political and economic power in the South, and people were trying to re-exert um, white supremacy uh, in the form of Jim Crow. And so this is that era when that is on the rise. The protests against Simon Sam, while they've always sort of existed, uh, really began in their current manifestation, I would say in 1968, right after Martin Luther King was killed. But this newest round of protests really started with the Silent Sam Coalition. The specific thing that the grade strike is responding to was this decision that is supposed to please everybody, but in fact is very strange. Yeah, I don't think this decision was supposed to please everybody. I think well, this okay. decision was supposed to please the Board of Trustees and the Board of Governors and the right-wing legislature that is if not the most, one of the most gerrymandered legislatures in the country. Um, I think if Carol Fult lived in a vacuum and didn't feel these pressures and her job wasn't, she would just be fine with the, with the statue not being on campus. So they plan to spend something like $5 million on, what is it, building a, some sort of building for the statue? This is the, <laughs> yeah. this is the compromise. Um, uh, right, that's the compromise. And so there's another uh, underlying issue here is that uh, we're not competitive with other um, universities in terms of how much 
teaching assistants get paid, right? right so yeah. we are paid significantly less than other universities, even though most of our programs are in the top 10. Yeah. Um, our, our salaries are not competitive with those other universities. So that's one frustration because it's a bunch of graduate students who are dealing with this. But the other frustration is that they're spending $5.3 million just to build the building. Then right. they're going to spend another $800,000 a year to maintain the building and provide security for the building. And then they talked about building this new police task force, basically, a mobile police task force to deal with protests that's going to hire 40 people full time. They just deal with protests on campus and we don't know what that means i mean it, it sounds to me like this is going to be increased policing um and the police in terms of their tactics against protesters they've arrested us they've gassed us they've thrown us to the ground they've pushed us into tables and over tables the police have at the same time been protecting white supremacists getting in and off the campus um, the police have not been our allies and so the idea that we would spend another two million dollars a year on a mobile police task force, which is part of this plan, um, it was really upsetting. Now, the craziest thing about this is this is going to serve as a rallying point for white supremacists, right? Um, it, it's considered a history and education center that's built around the statue um, that's going to tell the history of the universities, how they're framing it. Yeah. But it's going to serve, and we know this, is going to serve as a, um, as the statue in its previous form served as a, um, as a rallying point for white supremacists it's built across from a synagogue, right? So you have these Nazis who are going to gather at this new history center, and it's built across from a synagogue. And also people who have been active in the alt-right, in the white supremacist movement uh, that are supporting Silent Sam were in contact with uh, the shooter in Pittsburgh, Robert Bauer, yeah. who shot up that synagogue in Pittsburgh. One of the leading voices who has threatened some of the protesters with different forms of violence is a man named uh, online his name is jack corbin and he's been very active in things like gab which is the alt-right sort of social media site where they speak to one another um he was in conversation with um robert bowers uh, previous to the attack and so this is this is sort of when they talk about safety and um, all of that feels very hollow to graduate students who have been threatened who by white supremacists who have been arrested and gassed by cops and um these threats are being ignored, right? And so that's been a real frustration. And now this new plan is going to build a monument to white supremacy across the street from a synagogue. So it all feels sort of nuts. Yeah. But that's the world we're living in in North Carolina. So tell me how the grade strike came together. How did folks begin talking about this as a tactic and decide to enact it this year? Because it's a pretty big step to take. Yeah. Uh, so we're calling it a withholding of grades, not not a grade strike. Um, but we are withholding with grades uh, because we really tried everything else. I, I mean, it, it really is out of desperation at this point. Um, we we just can't believe that in 2018 we're going to recommemorate a Confederate statue at UNC. I mean, it was a this is changing the status quo at UNC. This statue has been torn down, and so. They're, they're changing the status quo. They're rebuilding it. They're spending all this money to do it. We've tried protesting. We've tried sit-ins. We've put ourselves in position to get arrested with civil disobedience. Uh, we've put ourselves in position to really get attacked by both police and white supremacists. And it's just unacceptable to have this statue. And so we're really out of options. Uh, and it's the one power we have. We can make the university 
look bad in the sense that they can't get their grades in. And, and universities that have monuments to white supremacy probably should look bad. And is this, this is, I assume, connected to other organizing going on among graduate workers and adjuncts on campus? Um, yeah, I mean, their, their graduate workers have um, begun rumblings of organization. Uh, we've been talking about things like student fees for a few years now. Um, there has been some labor organizing going on on campus. Um, they're not involved in this particular action, the, the union that we've started, but um, it certainly helped us connect with one another. And so I would say that the people who are leading this thing have been active on multiple fronts. And um, like I was talking about earlier, the fact that UNC stipends for graduate students aren't competitive with other stipends around the country and the fact that we do most of the grading at UNC and, and are not compensated for that, uh, that's a frustration among graduate students, certainly. Um, and we haven't really been treated with respect on this campus at all. And so I think a lot of people feel like this is something worth losing whatever we have um, over it. And so people are risking a lot for this. And uh, the networks that are helping produce this are, are formed through multiple struggles, through graduate struggles and through anti-racist struggles. Uh, I would say those two movements have been very closely aligned yeah. at UNC's campus, yeah. And talk a little bit more about that because um, obviously there are plenty of threads that connect these two fights for, for justice. Yeah, um, so actually, uh, the, you know, I, mean, I think the administration is very scared right now. Um, they keep saying you're hurting undergraduates and they keep threatening us. And that, it seems obvious that they're scared that we're hurting their reputation. And so what they've done is they've offered us, they said, oh, and just by the way, this was like a few days ago, we've decided to increase your stipends. You know, they haven't increased our stipends in over a decade, but they decided to increase our stipends. And they they know that we're upset about this. They, uh, they know that we've been organizing around uh, stipend increases. And it's as if they're trying to buy us off in some way. And so... I mean, I, I do think that our organizing has, has been enhanced by the fact that we've been doing two struggles at the same time, this anti-racist struggle and uh, graduate students, graduate workers' rights. That was Sam Fine Surrey of the University of North Carolina. Charter schools have long been known as union-free zones, but Chicago, a city with one of the most powerful teacher unions in the country, is becoming a hub for labor action within a sector that's often linked to privatization and deregulation. The first ever charter school strike was launched last week with more than 500 teachers and support staff at the Acero Charter School chain. Altogether, 15 campuses were frozen across the city for four school days. Teachers walked out and schools were basically shut down. Soon, the administration agreed to come to the table and workers plan to vote on a proposed contract in the coming weeks. The teachers went on strike to demand better wages, decent schedules, and smaller class sizes. But beyond those basic workplace issues, they also wanted a more equitable and socially conscious school community. One of their key demands was sanctuary school protections for immigrant students. It was a textbook example of bargaining for the common good, reflecting the broader social justice issues facing the mostly Latino student body. 
But the role of charters in Chicago remains uncertain. The Board of Ed has just voted to shut down two charter schools that are not in the SARA network, while pausing applications for new charter slots. Unions have long opposed charter school expansion as a form of backdoor privatization. But schools like SARA show that strong unions and the charter model can coexist under one roof. Chicago Teachers Union shut down public schools a few years ago in a massive community-wide movement for the right of every student to a good education and the right of every teacher to a just workplace. And now they're hoping to bring that formula to charter schools as well. Here's CTU organizer Chris Giovannis talking about what the strike means for Chicago and for charter schools as a whole. What was significant about this strike, since it was the first of its kind in the country, why this set of schools and why now? This strike was really a battle over classroom resources for students and uh, dignity and respect for educators. Uh, These are folks that have been bargaining for over seven months at the bargaining table. Their contract expired in October. Um, The UNO Acero Charter Network was the first charter network with the first school to actually unionize in the city of Chicago. They've expanded their real estate footprint to 15 schools. 98-plus percent of those students are Latino, Latina, Uh, many from uh, families where folks uh, struggle with issues of uh, status, um, including folks who are undocumented. So we laid down a very basic set of demands. Uh, This is a management structure, as we see in charters across the city and across the nation, where inordinate amounts of dough are siphoned off. Uh, from the public dollars that these charter operators collect into their own coffers or the funding for their real estate deals uh, or the funding for their charter management organizations, which siphon off even more dough, uh, because they're really treated, whether these are for-profit or non-profit operators, um, as basically a, a corporate gravy train investors seeking to find another way to suck up public dollars for private gain. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, we're also talking about a very dedicated school community uh, in terms of parents, the educators who've unionized there, and the particularly the paraprofessionals, uh, many of whom hail from the very communities uh, that they serve in, and many of whom uh, send their children to schools in the neighborhood, including some of these charter schools. So the demands were simple and really basic. We wanted sanctuary language embedded in the contract that would provide basic protections for our Latinx students and their families, uh, including um, a refusal on the part of the administration to admit ICE um, without a court order um, and to provide some very low-cost, no-cost services and information to families um, and, and essentially ensure um, a school climate that was welcoming of immigrant families. Uh, teachers and paraprofessionals uh, really broke with management also around issues of pay and treatment of educators. Uh, this particular charter operator, as we see in charter operators all over the nation, tends to have an extremely high turnover um, because wages and working conditions are, are poor. And teachers and paraprofessionals were particularly concerned about lifting up the wages of their lowest wage workers, the paraprofessionals, the school clerks, the um, IT techs, the teaching assistants, who are really the backbone of any school community. So that was a central demand. 
The other reason that demand was put forward was because Acero, like so many charter operators, has really steered away from hiring people of color into teaching positions. Um, and by uh, affording paraprofessionals who tend to come from the community, um, who tend to be black or Latinx, a better living wage, and a true path to expanding their skill set to actually join the teaching staff as full-blown uh, teachers, that was seen as a way to diversify a teaching staff that um, white, black, and brown uh, paraprofessionals and teachers at these schools felt was entirely too white and not reflective of the um, needs and the um, uh, origins of the school community. Um, they also waged battles around an issue of culturally sensitive curriculum, uh, around the issue of restorative justice rather than punitive justice to be exercised in those schools, um, and to try to claw back some of the ma uh, funding for public education that management was sucking up uh, and to pump those resources back into the classroom instead. Another key issue was the acute shortage of the provision of special education services for students. Uh, this is also a chronic problem in uh, charter schools in the metro area as it is in public schools, which are currently under uh, state supervision with a court-appointed monitor uh, to actually ensure that students are getting the special education services uh, that they deserve under federal law and to which they are entitled. We have a long way to go uh, on that issue in public schools, and charter schools are lagging even further behind the public schools uh, inside of the boundaries of Chicago. So we've been negotiating around these issues literally for seven months, and they essentially pushed us to the door. So teachers, paraprofessionals, and a growing number of parents and students spent four days on the picket line battling by withdrawing their labor to get some of the demands embedded uh, in our contract proposals actually met by management. Mm -hmm. At the same time that we mounted a sweeping um, earned media campaign to try to advise the greater public, the local beat reporters, um, but also the broader national press about what management was truly up to financially the kinds of conditions that those created in the schools, the kind of high turnover and disruption to school communities that poor learning conditions and poor working conditions drive, um, and also mounted a full court press with local elected officials and asked them to stand on the right side of the history instead of the wrong side of, the his, uh, of history and support educators and a growing number of parents and students in the their demand that the strike be settled fairly. One of the crucial uh, points in the demand was to ask for equal pay for equal work. Uh, just as uh, public educators across the country for the last year have been raising up these grassroots movements to demand better funding for public education, charters within those infrastructures tend to be even worse when it comes to paying living wages to educators that respect their profession and their commitment to their students. And it worked. Um, that kind of unified approach, that kind of multi-pronged uh, strategy to tackle the issues, ratchet up public awareness, press public officials, um, and really expose management uh, for their mistreatment of their students and their school communities 
ultimately forced management to the bargaining table uh, to acquiesce on our demands for smaller class sizes, better living wages, particularly for our paraprofessionals, a commitment in the contract to make an effort to devote more resources to special education, a commitment enshrined in the contract to protect immigrant students from ICE, uh, to uh, refuse to share parents and students' information with federal authorities, um, and broadly to move across a host of issues to improve learning conditions in the classrooms, increase resources in the classrooms, reduce turnover in the classrooms, and to begin to respect parent voice in those school communities. Did they meet all of the students' and the teachers' demands for sanctuary protections? So we asked for and won in the contract a commitment from management that they would share no information about students or parents with federal authorities, that they would never allow ICE to the schools unless they were ordered to under court order, um, and that they would take steps to actually provide resources to parents who need some support and assistance um, on status issues to those families. That was Chicago Teachers Union organizer Chris Giovannis. We've also learned this week that workers at the Tesla solar panel plant in Buffalo, New York, are unionizing. The United Steelworkers and an International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers are working with both production and maintenance employees in a joint organizing drive at the plant. This is, of course, a big deal, coming as it is in the middle of a burgeoning campaign for a Green New Deal in the U.S. Congress. Such a Green New Deal will obviously include work in industries like solar manufacturing. And one of the major questions is whether those jobs will be good ones with union protections. Governor Cuomo has pumped money into solar in the state, and after a bruising re-election with a challenger, Cynthia Nixon, who ran to his left on a Green New Deal, this drive will call the governor's green and pro-labor bona fides into question. The plant opened on the remains of the Republic Steel Mill, where workers were represented by the United Steelworkers, and was built with $750 million in state funds as part of Andrew Cuomo's vaunted Buffalo Billion project. The workers now see it as emblematic of what a green transition needs to look like. I wanted to work at Tesla because I wanted a job in green energy, a job that can change the world, Rob Walsh, an organizing committee member, told reporters. But I also want a fair wage for my work. We are committed to the continuing success of this facility, said United Steelworkers District 4 Director John Shin, and to making sure that Tesla's highly skilled workforce has good family-sustaining jobs. This historic United Steelworkers site will be the model of how emerging clean technology manufacturing can provide such an opportunity for its workers. Shin also noted that in a new and potentially game-changing partnership, the unions are working with the Clean Air Coalition of Western New York and the Coalition of Economic Justice. As Sarah Jones at New York Magazine noted, the drive also comes amid questions about Cuomo's vaunted Buffalo Billion project. Quote, Perhaps for related reasons, eight people connected with the project were either convicted or pleaded guilty to charges of corruption. One is headed to prison for three and a half years, according to the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. Some local officials had already expressed concern that Tesla wasn't on track to deliver the employment results the company had promised, something Tesla itself disputes. Musk, of course that would be Elon Musk, has said that Tesla's work will change the world. Cuomo wanted to change Buffalo. Buffalo's gigafactory workers look ready to call in both promises, end quote. We, of course, will be watching. (laughs) 
This past week, New York's Taxi and Limousine Commission voted to institute what is likely the country's first wage standard for app-based drivers at companies like Uber and Lyft. The announcement made national headlines and came as a result of organizing by New York drivers. To tell us about the victory, what it will mean in real terms for New York City's Uber, Lyft, and other app-based drivers, as well as New York's yellow cab drivers, we have returning belabored guest Baravi Desai of the New York City Taxi Worker Alliance. Explain what the new minimum wage rule does and why the city's rideshare drivers are in need of this regulation, which I believe is the first of its kind in the country. Tell us what's new about it. So it's not exactly a, a set minimum wage. What the Taxi and Limousine Commission, which is the local regulator in New York City, has done is passed a rule that requires companies like Uber and Lyft um, via all the different app dispatch companies to use a minimum rate of fare when they calculate how much the distance and the time is worth on any trip. So when a driver, you know, transports an Uber passenger, what happens right now is Uber looks at the fare, they look they look at the amount of miles and the the number of minutes and you know they multiply each of them by a set rate of fare. What that fare has been doing is leaving the vast majority of drivers, according to the city, ninety six percent of them earning below minimum wage because that rate of fare just isn't enough compared to what the expenses are that drivers end up paying. I mean, they pay for gasoline, you know, everything related to the vehicle, the insurance, the repairs, the maintenance, and of course, the actual cost of buying or leasing that car. So when you add it all of, all of that up, which is pretty predatory, and you combine that with the low rates of fare, 96% of Uber, Lyft, other app drivers have been left earning below minimum wage in New York City. So now with this new regulation, the TLC has raised that rate of fare, and so drivers are expected to earn closer to $17 per hour, which is basically the rate for uh, of $15 an hour for independent contractors, which drivers continue to be misclassified as, which means, of course, that they end up paying their own payroll taxes. What would the overall impact be for drivers' working conditions, given all of those overhead costs and how they balance, like, the number of rides they do versus the length of the trip? I mean, how would, how would this change sort of the, the day-to-day work conditions of a typical Uber or Lyft driver? Well, you know, I hope that this means that drivers won't have to keep working, like, 14-, 16-hour days. I mean... You know, New York City is one of the few markets where the majority of Uber, Lyft drivers are actually full-time drivers. You know, many of them used to drive a yellow cab or neighborhood livery as you've had massive, you know, bankruptcies in those sectors. Many of the drivers have switched over to driving for Uber, Lyft, or, or Via, or Get, or Juno. And, you know, the hours have been just really long. I mean, you work really long hours. You know, a typical Uber driver's day might be, you know, they're trying to work the morning rush hour. So let's say from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then from like 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., you take your you take your break. And then at 2 p.m., you start to get ready. You know, you go back on the streets at least by 4 o'clock when rush hour is starting. 
until around 11 or 12 o'clock at night. It's a really long day. I mean, when Uber talks about flexibility, this is what they mean by flexibility. It means that instead of working straight your eight-hour, nine-hour, ten-hour shift, you know, you end up taking long blocks of time off in the middle of your shift, but your work day is actually quite longer than an ordinary work day. And so, you know, as drivers have been pushed closer to, you know, to the edges of poverty, you can imagine they've had lesser breaks, they've had just longer days, just the fatigue, the wear and tear, you know, the level of despair. I mean, we've had eight driver suicides in New York City since November of 2017 um, to this year. And, you know, among them was an Uber driver. There are also two livery drivers and a corporate black car driver. And the other drivers were all yellow cab drivers. But there's such a deep race to the bottom. And, you know, as much as there have been bankruptcies and foreclosures and evictions, particularly for yellow cab drivers, that race to the bottom and that crisis poverty has also impacted the app drivers themselves. We hope that with this raise, people will begin to come out of that crisis and just start to have a better quality of life. And you would say that those long hours, that applies to regular cabbies as well, yellow cabbies too, not just Uber drivers? Oh, it's just, it's such a race to the bottom. Yes, I mean, the long hours and just, I mean, can you imagine, I mean, folks working, you know, 14-hour days, right, six to seven days of the week, still facing bankruptcies and foreclosures, you know, still facing the threat of homelessness, you know, um, still talking about feeling hunger, that they're just, they're, you know, and when they cut down, when we say they're cutting down on breaks, those are meal breaks. It means that either you're eating, you know, just fast food and, you know, during your car ride, which most drivers don't do because they think that's going to affect customer service. So what it really means is you're just, you know, you're eating less. You know, you're cutting, cutting out breaks means you're cutting out meals. It means that you're having less liquids. You know, you're not hydrating yourself as much because you're, you know, you're cutting out breaks. So you're not pulling over to go and use the restroom. You know, it's just, it's so, um, it's so unhealthy, right? And it's going to have such a long-term impact on drivers' health and on their lives. And it really is a race to the bottom. I mean, this is, and this in an industry, I mean, companies like Uber and Lyft are being evaluated as they're getting ready for their initial public offering in 2019. They're being evaluated as high as $100 billion. And yet the drivers that work for them are barely earning minimum wage. The drivers that work in the competing sectors that they have been out to just wipe out, you know, are, are facing homelessness and hunger. I mean, it's it just, it, it's such a dystopian business model. It's so destructive and anti-worker. Tell us about the organizing that went into making this rule change yeah. happen. Oh, God, you know, finally, after a lot of work and a lot of years, we're starting to make some, you know, we're starting to gain some ground and, and, and take in some victories. So a few months ago, New York City became the first city across the globe to put a, a cap 
on the number of new vehicles that Uber and Lyft and these other app-based companies can put onto the streets. I mean, low earnings, misclassification, and saturation of vehicles has been at the heart of the business model of these, you know, gig economy, you know, landlords, as we call them. Um, they um, And so finally we got a cap, which basically meant, right, that we could get things to stabilize. I mean, conditions were already at a crisis point, but at least we could get them to stabilize as there wouldn't be further saturation with new vehicles. I mean, Uber and Lyft drivers themselves, for example, were driving around empty for 42% of the time. And, I mean, it's also one of the reasons that 96% of them were earning below minimum wage. And so we first won a cap, and as part of that legislation, the city council also required the TLC to pass this regulation, um, you know, on the minimum rates of fare that these companies must pay the drivers. It's not ending here, though. I mean, we've also gotten legislation passed, for example, for um, an, an emergency commission to oversee medallion owner debt. And so, you know, yellow cabs have a permit called a medallion, which had been valued at a million dollars just a couple of years ago. They're now valued at 200, 200,000, 250,000, which means the value's fallen by 80%. That means that 80% of the expenses um, are impossible to pay for with the amount that the drivers are earning on the streets right now. And so um, if the expenses don't come down from the companies, that, that means the drivers would have to pay for everything out of pocket. You know, it's just, it's such, it's reached such a crisis point. It also means that the individual owner drivers who had bought their medallions and were looking to sell them at a higher value with the hopes of, you know, a large retirement package, they've all been out of retirement. And so even from like the eight suicides that we've seen, they're all older drivers. They were all drivers who were about to near retirement, you know, and that's what they've seen taken away from them. And so we've established a commission, which will really be um, one step for us to establish a, a proper debt relief program for owner drivers in this industry, where we could get the banks and the lenders to waive as much as 20% of the outstanding loans to lower the rate of interest, you know, similar to what happened during the the housing crisis in 2008 when the banks were bailed out. Um, but, you know, there was at least some level of relief for homeowners. That's what we need to see today. Also, um, we're, we're working on getting a real raise because as, 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 as important as the victory is that we just recently won with the Taxi and Limousine Commission regulation on minimum rates, we still want to see a proper raise for all of the drivers. The current one only lifts up incomes by about 11%. It's just not enough. So what we've been fighting for is to get rates to be even higher um, and for drivers to be entitled to 80% of what Uber takes in from the passenger. Because up until a couple of years ago, Uber drivers did earn 80% of the passenger fare. And as soon as Uber started to charge the passengers more, that's when they started to detach what drivers earn, you know, from the passenger fare and instead 
compensate drivers separately with these lower rates. So we're fighting for a return to a regulated commission system. And and with higher rates, um, we can establish those rates across the board, whether you're driving for Uber or a yellow cab or a livery or a corporate black car. We should have minimum rates of fare that are not poverty wages which allow for drivers to earn a livable income if they get at minimum 80% of that fare. And we continue to cap the rate of expenses that drivers across this industry pay. We've established that on the yellow cab side. We're now fighting in phase two of our campaign to establish that in the Uber, Lyft, and the app world where the vehicle financing and leasing is so predatory. And so raising the rate stopping the saturation, capping the expenses. It's this three-part formula that's really going to give drivers a proper raise and lift them out of poverty. So, you know, we, we've been winning, we're gaining momentum, and, you know, we're, we're, we've been setting the stage for our ultimate goal, which we hope to meet by um, around April or May of next year. Yeah. So can you talk about um, how organizing sort of with traditionally with the yellow cab drivers and then the organizing that brings about, you know, I presume you're organizing Uber and, and Lyft drivers alongside them to make um, regulations like this one happen. Absolutely. You know, everyone is in this together. It's like you're going to, you can't lift up one sector without lifting up everybody because, you know, our the motto of our unity campaign has been Uber starves the Uber driver so they can starve the taxi driver. I mean, they, for example, they continue to cut the rates of fare, which led the Uber drivers to 96% being below minimum wage because they were trying to outcompete the other sectors, right, as they're, they're hoping to monopolize. And so, you know, each driver is in this together. And the, the very tactics of exploitation that the companies have used against Uber, you know, their own drivers directly, are basically the tactics of monopolization they're trying to use to wipe out the other sectors. And so... And, and, you know, our unity campaign has also worked in New York because you have a lot of former yellow cab drivers who've been our members throughout the years that, that went on to work for Uber and Lyft. So, you know, we see ourselves like a traditional industrial union. You know, it doesn't matter to us which company you're working for. This is one industry. We believe in wall-to-wall organizing. It's the only way that the workers can have maximum power. I mean, if we go out with the crisis that yellow cab and neighborhood livery drivers are in today, if we go out tomorrow and we organize a strike just among those two sectors, you know, the obvious reality is Uber and Lyft would come in. And with their Wall Street investor money, they could even say, you know, we're, hey, passengers, don't worry about it. You know, we're going to drop the rate of fare by 90% today. So no no driver in any other sector would ever feel confident to go out on strike. You know, um, it only happens if we all go out on strike together. And for Uber and Lyft, let's say Uber and Lyft is the only game that remains in town. They are able to monopolize. Well, our level of leverage and power is maximum at a pre-monopoly stage. 
we, you know, we can't end up where Amazon and Walmart workers are today, where the companies have amassed so much consolidated wealth, it's really difficult to organize against them. So this is our moment to do that. Unless the workers of the other sectors are organized, Uber and Lyft, Lyft drivers themselves won't have maximum leverage. So, you know, we're, we're in it together. I mean, you know, workers have, you know, like, and drivers know this is a really unsafe profession. You're 30 times more likely to be killed on this job than any other job. And at the end of the day, you know, when your trouble light goes up in your car, the police don't see it. Passengers, you know, passersby don't see it. It's your fellow driver that sees it. That's how you build power and it's how you survive day to day. In a lot of other areas where Uber and Lyft have um, been able to make a lot of market gains, you know, cabbies and and rideshare drivers have traditionally been seen as rivals to each other. Um, You're actually doing Mm -hmm. something different by organizing the whole sector together as one workforce. Can you explain, like, why a typical New York traditional yellow cab driver would want to feel solidarity with an Uber driver? Like, how? what did they gain from uh, this new regulation? You know, how does it help them directly? So, I mean, the cap, of course, help, can help everybody across the board because every group of driver was being affected by the oversaturation. The minimum rates that were just established won't raise yellow cab driver incomes directly, but what they will do is establish a floor so Uber and Lyft cannot keep undercutting the rate of fare, you know, which has which they have used up until now to really outcompete against yellows and the other sectors. And the only way that yellow cab drivers will ever feel comfortable, for example, to call for them their own meter rate to go up is if Uber Lyft are at the same minimum rate of fare. And and without that raise in the rate of fare, you can't raise your income. And so you need to establish that minimum you know, regulation across the board. So in the long run, you can't have an industry where one sector is so hyper-regulated and then the most dominant sector is completely deregulated. I mean, that, it just, that wipes out everybody else in that industry. And so the only way that you lift standards is to call for even regulation across the board. Now, in other parts of the world, taxi industry has called for deregulation. We don't believe in that because the regulation that we have fought for through the years had allowed us to bring yellow cab drivers' incomes up to a livable income standard. So we want the app sector to be brought up to that level of regulation. We don't want regulation to be brought down. And so very early on, we took these decisions that regulation was going to be important, that the only way you can maximize power in one sector as workers is to organize across this industry. And to be honest with you, the number one reason is because it's the same people, you know? You could be driving a yellow cab today and be driving for Uber or Lyft tomorrow. You could be driving for Uber or Lyft today and be driving for a neighborhood livery tomorrow or go back to a yellow cab. And like that's exactly what's been happening. It's been this revolving door 
where out of desperation, drivers keep trying their hand at the different sectors. And so we want the choice not to be, you know, the lesser of two evils, right? We want the choice to be which sector gives us a type of working condition, meaning where, you know, the hours that we work, the type of vehicle that we're driving. We want those to be, you know, the the factors that help you decide what you're going to be driving, you know, which is what it was for about 40 years in this industry, you know, before Uber and Lyft came into town and brought in this race to the bottom and absolutely decimated the labor conditions. Yeah. So you mentioned the driver suicides, and I wanted to ask you to talk about that a little bit more. It's been so heartbreaking. I mean, I can't even tell you. Um, you know, since November of 2017, we, that's when we first heard about the first two driver suicides. They were both, both men were livery drivers. Then in February 2018, a black car, you know, a traditional corporate black car driver, Douglas Shifter, committed suicide and he shot himself outside of city hall and left a, a you know like a really detailed note a facebook post which was like probably the most damning and brilliant critique of the gig economy you know that i'd read up to that time i mean you know douglas just really laid out like the impact of the oversaturation the lack of regulation on the rate of fare you know and on incomes and how each sector of driver was being pitted against each other in the most inhumane way where, you know, absolutely nobody was surviving. And he talked about having been a professional driver for 30 plus years who really knew the streets, who knew how to maximize his schedule and was now at a point where he was facing homelessness and talked about feeling hungry, you know? um, And, you know, after Douglas's death, well, since then, there have been three yellow cab owner drivers, um, a yellow cab lease driver, and an, an Uber driver. And so it's just, it's just really devastating. And, you know, the thing is, suicides have followed this business model across the globe. There were 10 plus suicides in Taiwan that we know of. Um, in Australia, in India, in South Africa, and of Uber drivers themselves. You know, there have been massive bankruptcies and foreclosures and places like Philadelphia. There have just been people moving out of town. You know, they're just like getting up and moving, you know, like after they've been living in Philadelphia, entire families for years and years. It's just, you know, it's almost like a level of economic displacement, right? Because you just, you can't make ends meet. And so there's such an economic crisis. You know, I have to tell you, like as hard as it as it was in the beginning to organize a unity campaign, it's been much harder to organize in an environment where you see people that you love so much that you you know that you fight for on a day to day basis you you know how hard they were, and you know how important it is that everybody work with the level of justice and dignity. It's been heartbreaking. And just really difficult to see the suicides, but we've been we've been making sure that every driver out there knows that change is coming, and every single person is needed in order to win this fight. You know, and that there's a larger driver family which has each other's backs. I mean, 
can you imagine on every flyer where we're talking about a demonstration? And over the summer, we had 25 demonstrations, which ultimately led to all of these victories. On every one of those flyers and emails and Facebook posts, we've been listing National Suicide Hotline Prevention Number. You know, we've been having clinics on bankruptcies and, and evictions. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's surreal that in an industry of this much wealth, I mean, the Uber, you know, the average CEO in the U.S. makes about 230 times more than their average employee. The Uber CEO, compared to an Uber driver, makes 5,700 times more. That's the obscene level of income inequality that we're talking about, you know, and, you know, within this context of just um, crisis poverty. Uber and and Lyft have, you know, they sort of tout themselves as revolutionizing the taxi industry. um, And, you know, they are sort of embedded in our transit system now and many New Yorkers they strongly criticize the the corporation's policies, um, but others see it as a convenience. Can you talk about how the passenger experience and and the kinds of prices customers will see um, might or might not be affected by the new rules that are coming into into place? Sure. I mean, you know, Uber and Lyft, particularly Uber, had already been starting to charge passengers more um, really since last year. I mean, there have been lawsuits, for example, by passengers claiming that they'd noticed that the more of a frequent user they are, the higher they were being charged. Um, because it used to be that Uber would show the passenger, you know, like that here are our rates, that for distance and for the length of the trip, here's how we calculate your rate. But then since last year, they started using something called upfront pricing, where they would just quote you a rate. And they would not show you the logic of, you know, how how they came about that calculation. That was, again, the same moment in time that they cut drivers out of passenger fare revenue. So just as drivers started to lose, so did the public. We put together 1,000 Uber trips from our members, which we submitted to the TLC as part of this organizing campaign, which really evidenced how much more the company has been charging passengers and how little of that is actually trickling down to the driver. So um, I don't, you know, if Uber now claims that they're going to have to charge passengers more, I mean, you know what? They've been charging passengers more. It's um, They don't actually have to. They could They could keep their prices stagnant. And at the end of the day, 96% of the drivers are earning below minimum wage. Their low fares were never going to be sustainable. You know, you cannot have an economy, a service economy, where the only way that the customers get to pay less is if the workers starve. That's not the way that you call for lower consumer rates. The Uber CEO is earning 5,700 times more than that driver. Let his rate of income come down. Let their profits come down. It shouldn't fall on the driver, and it it doesn't have to fall on the consumer either. And the consumer can stand with the driver to make that call. 
The actual original proposal that um, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance had come up with um, had a sort of a broad plan for reforming the industry, um, and there were specific asks that you had for yellow cabbies as well. Those seem to be not be fully addressed by what's been rolled out so far for Uber drivers. Um, what are other reforms that you're trying to push in, in addition to this, and how will you go about that in the you know in the coming months? During the same hearing, when when the when the Taxi Limousine Commission voted on for the Uber drivers, we also did win some reform for um, yellow cab and green cab drivers, where um, their the amount that they pay on the on the credit cards will come down. So it'll be about a thousand dollars more in income. Absolutely, it's it's just it's just not enough, right? But what we've been calling for are really a couple of things. Number one is a debt relief program, as I mentioned before, for yellow cab owner drivers in particular to stop like the tsunami of bankruptcies and foreclosures that we've seen where people are just being completely wiped out after years of investment in their medallion. And so we're working with the Taxi Limousine Commission and the city council now to put together a debt relief program. So some of their debt could just be waived um, you know, could just be forgiven. Interest rates could come down. And hopefully with philanthropy, we can also put together some emergency grant programs. Secondly, we've been campaigning to fight a congestion pricing fee. So congestion pricing was passed by our, by Albany, you know, our state legislature, um, which would, which would add $2.50 to every yellow cab ride. It, that's within 96th Street and below in the borough of Manhattan, and which is about 90 to 95% of yellow cab trips will be affected. And so, of course, if the passenger off the bat has to pay 250 more, we know that's going to lead to a drop-off in ridership, especially when Uber and Lyft and the other apps have been able to essentially buy themselves a carve-out where their their carve-out says, that as long as the passenger requests a group ride, then the, then Uber and Lyft only have to charge 75 cents. And Uber has already said on the record that they're really going to put in incentives for the public to request a group ride. Now, even if that request is not matched, meaning that passenger is the singular passenger in that so-called group ride, Uber and Lyft still only have to pay 75 cents. So again, without the floor level regulation on their rate of fare, they're going to be able, you know, and you combine that with their Wall Street investor money, they're going to be able to play a lot of games to outcompete the yellow cab sector, which is already on a lifeline at this point. And so we're fighting for an exemption from congestion pricing on December 19th. We're mobilizing for a demonstration outside the governor's office. The Taxi and Limousine Commission has already said from a regulatory point of view that this is not a plan that is going to work. And so they've refused to take the vote required of them to implement it. And we're now calling for the ultimate regulatory agency, the state agency, Department of Taxation and Finance, to also further delay because 
on one hand, while yellow cabs are outfitted with technology that automatically captures and has geofencing so that they won't be able to shortchange the state on the money that's turned over because that technology is controlled by a third party, Uber and Lyft are entirely self-reporting. And these are companies that have been found across the globe, you know, to basically fudge those numbers and evade taxes. And so the TLC has said, since they can't have, you know, equal means of enforcement, that they believe that there needs to be a delay before the program is implemented. Also because the congestion pricing fee does not affect, for example, private motorists or trucks. And so that means that if private motorists had had to pay a fee, the assumption was many of them would park their cars and instead take like a taxi, you know, or, or, or Uber or Lyft. Without that fee, you're not going to see a drop-off, you know, of congestion, nor are you going to see the possibility of more people, you know, hailing a cab. And so it's just punitive at this point. And really at the heart of it, congestion pricing is no longer about stopping congestion. It's no longer about pricing transportation in order to to subsidize mass transit, you know, our subways and buses, which have been in an emergency situation. It's fundamentally now about a roadmap for Uber and Lyft to more easily monopolize by just wiping out the yellow cab sector. Our governor has been a friend of Uber and Lyft for a long time. Um, he said recently he would have changed his name to Amazon Cuomo to, you know, attract Amazon, which, of course, it turned out none of neither his name changed nor the three billion dollars in tax breaks Amazon eventually got from the city and the state was even necessary because they were planning to be in New York City all along. But, you know, he's been a fan of the gig economy from day one. And so this is a really serious situation, you know, for the yellow cab sector. So we've been calling for an exemption for yellow cabs and green cabs from the congestion pricing fee. That is also the only way that we'll be able to increase the meter rate at a modest rate where that increase will go to the drivers who are in desperate need of it rather than back to the state, which has already collected a billion dollars from yellow and green cab drivers since 2009 to subsidize mass transit. To kind of wrap up there, what are some lessons from this process for the rest of the labor movement since we're seeing um, things like Janus and the NLRB failing and uh, whatever? So what can people learn from the way that you've been able to win campaigns like this? First and foremost, you have to organize. You know, workers are the leaders. You know, when workers lead, the world follows. The working class has power, right? We're not victims. We're, we're agents of change. And the job of a union is to unleash that power through organizing. And so first and foremost, make organizing the priority, you know, allow for working people to lead. Secondly, we have to build a working class, you know, a labor movement that is a class-conscious, working-class-led labor movement, where we're not just looking out for the, for the interests of who we directly represent. And, of course, that's important, right? That's our job. That's, that's the mission of our organizations. But you, can't, you cannot 
you cannot defend and protect and, you know, expand the rights of the workers that you directly represent without defending, protecting, and expanding the rights of the working class as a whole. Because eventually it will come back to get you. You know, that, you, that line gets drawn. Eventually that line will affect you. And so, you know, we're, we're in it together. I mean, just like Uber and yellow cab drivers have found a way to stand together, recognizing that our survival is codependent. It's that same recognition that we need across the labor movement, you know, as, as, as workers across the economy, where the working class and, and the, you know, and, and, you know, Low-wage workers, poor people are at the front line of that fight where, you know, middle-class, higher-income, higher-earning workers stand together in, in unity. And we fight for, you know, broader social policies and, and laws and regulations that can really expand the rights of everybody, of all workers together. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask about was, um, you know, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance has long been known as sort of the uh, the leading sort of union organizing force um, for for uh, all drivers um, in in New York City. Um, but one of the other groups that's been involved in this whole debate is the Independent Drivers Guild. Can you talk about what that is and what their role is in this landscape? Sure. Um, so the IDG, this is another lesson of what the union movement should not be doing. The IDG, Independent Drivers Guild, was formed through a private contract between the Machinist Union and Uber Technologies. This happened about 2016. You know, Uber and Lyft have more lobbyists than, than Walmart, Walmart, Microsoft, and Amazon combined. And the IDG is basically another lobbying contract. They were created so that these companies would have labor cover, right? So when there would be unrest at the grassroots rank and file worker level, these companies could say, oh, no, but here's this union that hails us and we have a private agreement with them. In, in exchange for Uber's money, IDG has agreed to give Uber that labor cover publicly and has also agreed to not fight Uber's misclassification and labor law violations. So, I mean, it's just, it's such a betrayal of the most basic principles that workers hold dear. The boss cannot dominate your union. That was Baravi Desai with New York Taxi Workers Alliance. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is It's Never Just the Immigrants by Harry Blaine in Foreign Policy and Focus. Blaine writes about the intersection between crackdowns on civil liberties and crackdowns on immigration. The two have always oscillated in the gray area of national security law, and the Alien Sedition Acts, the Palmer Raids, the Red Scare, all of these great crackdowns on civil liberties have had twin aims, cracking down on foreigners and cracking down on suspected 
targeted political subversives. They've often only focused on one specific kind of immigrant, namely labor activists and community organizers who pose a direct threat to state power. Blaine explores how the law of borders, which is ostensibly a part of civil rather than criminal law, has been wielded as a cudgel by national security officials to create a constitution-free zone in which security officials can imprison, persecute, and deport immigrants by demonizing them not only as illegal border crossers, but also as political threats to the nation. Trump has repeated a similar pattern of targeting immigrants. He's not so explicit about targeting political enemies among immigrants, though he certainly does seem to have a vendetta for many of his political compatriots. But if you look closely, he's not just targeting immigrants as a whole, but immigrants who are often working class, seen as not the type of people America wants to let into the country. And these are often communities that are under siege, increasingly restive, and in a position to organize and challenge the status quo. Several recent detainees have been prominent rights activists who have led workers' movements or sought to organize fellow immigrant workers. These include Ravi Ragbir in New York with the New Sanctuary Coalition. He is actually fighting deportation now while suing the government for violating his free speech rights as an activist. There are also Vermont dairy worker activists, Jose Enrique Balcazar Sanchez and Zuli Victoria Palacios Rodriguez, both of whom were detained, in part, many suspect, as a result of the robust labor organizing activities among local migrant workers. Much of this happens under the pretext of kicking out so-called illegal aliens, since after all, it is easier to detain someone for not having papers than it is to jail someone for protesting at their workplace, for joining a union, or for exercising their free speech rights. Blaine writes, quote, briefly strip away our instinctive citizen-alien distinctions and consider what's happening here. People in the United States are not violently challenging the actions of its government and being met with not just official indifference, but hostile intimidation. Historically, of course, rabble-rousers like Emma Goldman have often been at the top of the list for deportation. Harry Bridges fought deportation orders for years while he was helping to radicalize and mobilize dock workers in California. And I know from my own research that a great many radical groups linked to the Communist Party as well as the industrial workers of the world, including front groups like the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born, as well as the old CIO, they all bore the brunt of many immigration crackdowns when the feds caught a whiff of their efforts to unionize migrant workers, particularly workers of color. Today, according to Blaine, quote, rogue federal agencies use deportation as a political weapon. Labor unions are facing a variety of attacks from all levels of government and broad, class-based coalitions are inhibited by well-crafted elite demagoguery. The targeting of immigrants isn't carried out just for the fun of it, but it is intimately linked to a long and ignoble record of labor repression in the United States. Depending on the political context, sometimes ideological subversion is used as the main excuse to carry out anti-immigrant raids and xenophobic crusades. For instance, blaming foreigners for the invasion of anarchist ideas from Europe German socialism, etc., etc. Other times, racist anti-immigrant ideologies are used as an excuse to attack political activists who happen to be foreign-born. Either way, whether the primary consideration is ideology or foreign birth, the two factors of ideology on the one hand and racist nationalist exclusion on the other compound each other in the unjust seizure of power by the state. 
It is power exercised for power's sake. And Blaine notes that borders and the workplace are two spaces where anti-democratic rulers are the quickest to abuse their power. Quote, the dismal, unceasing fact is that when we allow the government to chase down unruly foreigners with little or no regard for their civil liberty, a wider spiral of state-sponsored lawlessness is set in motion. People like J. Edgar Hoover learned what they could get away with during their wild crusades against alien subversion, and later applied many of the same methods against their homegrown foes. Joseph McCarthy and Martin Dees first put small numbers of foreigners under the spotlight of their inquisition in search of un-American activities, but end up ruining the careers of at least 10,000 people forever tarnished as disloyal by anonymous allegations and Kafkaesque public questioning, unquote. The broader danger here is that these authoritarian power grabs are often canaries in the coal mine. The Red Scare, which went after foreign communists, then unions with many immigrants in them, and then everyone else suspected of somehow being involved with dangerous ideas, shows that the creep of fascism always begins with the least powerful in society. And both our immigration laws and our labor laws act to keep huge swaths of the population oppressed and subservient. But conversely, when workers organize and immigrant communities organize, we can become exactly what the government fears when it suppresses workers' movements. And it's nothing that we should fear. Rather, we should be emboldened by it. They become a radical popular resistance. We are talking, as I mentioned earlier, about a Green New Deal a lot these days. Dissent's own Kate Aronoff had a big piece recently laying out what such a thing could mean. But as we move forward on such a subject, there are important questions being raised. And the one that caught my eye this week was raised by New York Magazine's Eric Levitz, whose piece is provocatively titled, Is a Green New Deal Possible Without a Revolution? Levitz explains what the Green New Deal is, a plan to remake American energy infrastructure around renewable energies while, at least in its best iterations, building in new good jobs and reparations for the communities, mostly communities of color, that have taken the brunt of already existing climate catastrophe. While what exactly such a program will look like is still being hashed out, and friend of belabored Kali Akuno makes an intervention worth reading it in These Times magazine this week as well, it has become international shorthand even in countries that didn't have the New Deal to begin with. For the kind of transition in the economy that is needed to halt climate crisis while also making sure the majority of people all actually have livable lives. As Levitz writes, quote, But to the American left's most utopian reformists, the Green New Deal is shorthand for an ambition even more sweeping. More precisely, it is a means of conveying their vision for radical change to a popular audience by way of analogy. But, Levitz notes, the New Deal came about during very different circumstances, hence the question in his headline. He writes, quote, 80 years ago, the United States was faced with a malign force that threatened to eradicate the possibility of decent civilization. Editor's note, he's talking about Nazis. We responded by entrusting our elected government to reorganize our economy and concentrate our nation's resources on nullifying the Axis threat. In the process, America not only defeated fascism abroad, but consolidated a progressive transformation of its domestic political economy. The war effort affirmed the public sector's competence at directing economic activity, fostered unprecedented levels of social solidarity, and in so doing banished laissez-faire from the realm of respectable opinion. In the course of a decade, ideas from the far-left fringe of American thought became pillars of establishment consensus. Very serious people suddenly agreed that it was legitimate for the state to enforce collective bargaining rights, impose steeply progressive income taxes, administer redistributive social programs, subsidize home ownership, and promote full employment. 
The New Deal ceased to be a single president's ad hoc recovery program and became a consensus economic model. An unprecedented contraction in economic inequality ensued. The most prosperous middle class in human history was born, end quote. I would note also that the New Deal came about in the wake of massive global economic collapse and an actual revolution in what became the Soviet Union. Absent actually existing at the time communism, would capitalists have gone along with it? Open question that we will never know the answer to. But now, of course, Levitz notes the story is very different. Quote, the Axis powers posed an immediate threat to many American capitalists and their overseas investments, while U.S. victory in the war promised corporate America a bonanza. This self-interest dampened corporate resistance to FDR's mobilization of the war economy, which itself massively increased the leverage of American labor. Securing global hegemony for American capital required victory, and victory required maintaining labor peace in a context of full employment. Unions could deliver the latter and thus were in a position to demand concessions. With that leverage, they secured maintenance of membership rules that allowed them to count all new employees at unionized plants as members and immediately charge them dues. As a result, a record high 35.5% of the non-agricultural labor force was unionized by 1945. By contrast, climate change poses less of an immediate threat to America's contemporary economic elites than the Green New Deal does. The Koch network fears the euthanasia of the fossil fuel industry and confiscatory top tax rates a lot more than rising sea levels. Thus, corporate resistance to World War II-esque state-led mobilization to combat climate change, let alone an avowedly socialist one, is certain to be immense. And given the conservative movement's tightening grip over the federal judiciary and Red America's increasingly disproportionate influence over state governments and the Senate, Green New Dealers would need to defeat near-unanimous corporate opposition on a playing field sharply tilted to their rivals' advantage. End quote. Levitz asks a question similar to the one asked by Chris Hayes at The Nation a few years back. But Hayes drew on a different analogy than the New Deal. The best analogy, he argued, for the loss that capital will take by leaving carbon reserves in the ground was the end of slavery, and ending slavery took a civil war. This is not to dampen anyone's enthusiasm for green transition, because our other options are, well, die. And as I noted above, for the very necessary inclusion of labor from the ground level in any such policy plans. But it is to note that capital is going to put up an incredibly vicious fight. Just getting the new Green New Deal on the agenda for the Democrats, Levitz points out, has taken multiple sit-ins in Nancy Pelosi's office. Nancy Pelosi, progressive caucus member. What will it look like to actually radically remake the economy? To that end, Levitz points at the French Yellow Vest protests of recent weeks, which have been unjustly painted as entirely right-wing because they oppose a regressive carbon tax, but have also given us graffiti such as, well, we're going with translations here because my French accent is atrocious and you will not want to listen to it. We want some cash while we are waiting for communism and no Christmas for the bourgeoisie. Many of the protesters have in fact been people who didn't vote or even voted for French President Macron, now in a death spiral of plummeting approval ratings as he scrambles to appease the protests. The point is that in order to win a transition that isn't taken out on the backs of the working class in ways small and large, or that doesn't just leave us to die, we're going to have to do a whole hell of a lot of disruption. Some of that I mentioned above is going to be winning worker power in green industries, some of it is going to have to be raising holy hell when the government does the wrong thing. 
that is all we have time for this week. Thank you, as always and again, to Descent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special holiday season thank you to our belabored sustaining members. I am just saying that a belabored tote bag would make a great holiday gift, as would one of our Style and New Descent t-shirts. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership, or about our new Solidarity subscription program and t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a Tesla factory worker or a UNC worker or student, if you're a charter school teacher or a nail salon worker, if you drive for Uber or drive a yellow cab. You can also tweet at us at hashtag belabored. The holidays are approaching, but we will have some bonus content coming to tide you over, and we'll be back in the new year. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.